0: Hi, I'm Stathis, your host. Before we jump in this episode, let me introduce DevRelX. DevRelX is a hub for developer marketing and DevRel professionals. Stay home while DevRelX brings you rich content to boost your DevRel game. Access developer population insights, news, job openings, and more. Discover how to empower developers and grow communities at devrelx.com. Today's episode will start with a quote from our guest.
1: The API mindset is really how I can make my piece of software, my program, my technology reused by the many at zero cost of implementation.
0: Hi, welcome to a new episode of Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, our slash data podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. I'm Safis, your host. Our guest today is a very, very, very busy man with a lot of passion for what he does. No other than Mehdi Medzawi, who is an author, European Commission expert, and founder of API Days, ZeroAuth.io, GDPR Dev, and yes, more. Mehdi, welcome to the show. Hi. Well,
1: thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be participating to your show and talking about uh, APIs and developer
0: marketing. Listen, we're very happy to have you here. Uh, I hope I did not forget something during your intro, but uh, let's better hear it from you. Will you please introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, i tried try to make it quick, but let's say uh, over the last 10 years, I've been a, a strong advocate about how APIs can change the, our conflict mindset about doing software and doing business. So for that, I've built one conference called API Days Conferences that has been held 50 times over the last eight years in more than 10 countries, and we still do have like a, an 80 a year. I also did some companies, I built OAuth.io, it's an API for authorization protocols and social login that was used by more than 50,000 developers that has been acquired in 2017. And now I'm, the, I'm building gdpr.dev, it's open source tools for developers to implement GDPR regulation, but in a programmable way. So not for just legal and lawyers, but now developers can implement the law directly into their code. Uh, and lastly, I'm the president of a nonprofit called the Maintainers. It helps open source maintainers to find new ways to make their software more sustainable on the technical side and
0: financial side. Yeah, definitely a very busy man. So, how did you end up in technology and uh, all the way to founding uh, all off at the beginning and then IBI days?
1: Uh, so a uh, quick story. So first my uh, major when I was student was uh, material engineering that was actually it was not uh, uh, software engineering. I did some com- computer science, of course. But uh, yeah, and I built the first nanotechnology company with one of my professors. And so I, I I really tried to change the world with technology at the time, but mostly with energy. It was hydrogen storage company, right? And after the company stopped four years ago, I, I wanted to build a new kind of uh, called Humankind Wall, it was a monument of the web, right? Uh, so it's like, um, let's say, it's mixed between Google Maps and Pinterest, right? So at the time, you were able to pick a case, put a content there, a photo, a video, and you, that was a tribute of our generation. And building that Humankind Wall, that was a kind of artistic thing, uh, we begin to use many, many APIs, like 30, 40, 50 different APIs, that were all different and all like, not designed the same way, different protocols, different format in 2011. And I said, oh my God, like, APIs are the future of software, the future of automation, the future of our programmable world. But actually, we, we, it's, not, it's not programmable enough. Like They are so different. So we shifted the project to build tooling to help developers to integrate APIs. And building that tooling, and making a company out of it and trying to pitch it to companies, we've seen that companies didn't understand software and APIs as we were understanding. So this is why we said, okay, we need to build the tools, but we need also to build the conference. We need to build the event to help decision makers to understand. And this is how all of us started, like, because we just wanted to make some art and build a monument on the web. And finally, we, did, we found that uh, we needed to make a better APIs for a programmable society.
0: Definitely very, very interesting, both what you were trying to build and the API barriers you, you faced. But we'll get deeper into that in a few minutes. So was there a driving force or a role model that led you to technology and where you are today? Yeah, the, the main
1: driving force behind all of this was uh, the ability to do more work with less. And all, all uh, my uh, political engagement and my uh, philosophy thinking and all of this is that like how we can free people for, uh, from, let's say, uh, a constrained work to do like free work, right? And by that, how we do that? We do that by making machine work and software work, right? This is, this is how we can do it today in our society. And so all, my, all you can read in all my uh, writing or all my work Always, this this uh, willingness to help people, to empower people, to do more with less, and using software especially to do that. And and it can be software APIs, open source. It can be uh, all all the different aspects of my of my career. But this is really the the driving force, enabling people to do more with less. And doing by doing that, we need to standardize. We need to uh, make things uh, more uh, respect more conventions and make things more interoperable. So like that with the less work, we can build a lot more, right? And this is uh, all had what I've what I've been driving my the last 12 years now of of all what I, what I've done.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a noble cause to work smart, not hard, as they usually say. But yeah, it's it's been great because this way you can achieve way more uh, to wait less time.
1: Yeah, one of my mentor used to say, uh, like, uh, it's not a lot of work who pays off; it's good work who pays off. So. If we can help people to do good work instead of doing a lot of work, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a project I, I'm in.
0: Yeah, that's something I stand behind too. Was there a habit in your childhood that you still carry to work to life today?
1: So in in my childhood, uh, let's say I have a, a, I've been a quite happy child and my parents were, were there. But that's what, that's actually the what 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 still drives me today from, from my childhood is exactly what I'm trying to do with the non profit maintainers, right? Because Every, everywhere in our life, we, try, we maintain others and we're maintained by others, right? And in my childhood, my parents actually maintained uh, me, my, uh, my, uh, uh, always supported me in, what, in all I, uh, I wanted to do. And actually, so they're they, they really uh, maintained by people to maintain others, right? This is really what drives me and, and that uh, I try to translate into the nonprofit, the maintainers. So it's not only about open source maintenance, right? But it's the fact that we always owe to people who maintained us before and to maintain now new people, new, uh, new members of the community that will owe us at some time, but that will maintain other people after. So it's a continuity and that relies, that, that relies a lot with software, actually. We build on the software of people before us, so we add our, what we can and that will be useful for the people after us, right? And so, yeah, the, this maintenance idea is really what, dra- what has driven me since childhood.
0: It's, it's a good thing, you know, to, to keep, pick up in your childhood and uh, keep driving forward. Yeah, yeah, and,
1: and, yeah, yeah and, and, and people who say, I've made myself, I'm a, I'm a self-made person, I'm a self-made whatever developer, I'm a self-made entrepreneur, they just forgot the, the one who maintained them to enable them to be who they are, right? And so, yeah, I try to never forget who maintained me in the past uh, to, to be uh, who I am today.
0: Yes, respect is uh, always something to keep in mind, no matter how far you go.
1: Totally agree with that. Totally agree.
0: So it's, uh, this Getting to know you has been great. So now it's time for our insight-driven section called Let's Talk Data. Please pick a graph from devrelex.com slash trends. And uh, will you tell us why it is important to you and uh, what makes it stand out?
1: So that was really hard for me to find only one, <laughs> to pick only one. But, uh,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, good to hear.
1: Yeah, but uh, yeah, Actually, it's really compelling data and really, really interesting. Uh, but let's say with all the conference and all the work we've done trying to help big companies to understand software, Right and really understand what's what's the mindset right since uh, the software bring. I just took one, which is uh, the number of people invested involved in software development in company. Right, it's a percentage of developer about uh, six thousand people. Right, uh, in your in your uh, devrelx.com trends, and it shows uh, it shows like how many people inside a company are. Um, let's say uh, involved directly in software development. And we can see that, in average, uh, depending on company who are, who are using, uh, let's say, DevOps practice or not, but it's between 10 and 14% of uh, people involved in software for company that more than 500 people, right? And yes, and it's between 8 and 13 for between 100 and 500, right? And it goes down to, uh, let's say, uh, between 19 and 23% for company between 11 and 50 people. And up to between around fifty percent of people of company for ten or less people, right? And it reminds me something extremely important when Mark Andresen, you know, the famous uh, entrepreneur and investor in the Silicon Valley, say twenty eleven, software is eating the world, right? When he says that actually companies who understand software so deeply uh, will win because now software is not just technology; it's it's a full mindset, and if you build software in a way that, is, that the consumer will love. Actually, he will prefer an application that is well-built, well-designed, that makes things easy, but maybe that doesn't have all the features that another big brand uh, offers, but that where the experience and the technology is not used in, in the right way. So, so uh, yeah, Marco Justin said, for example, this is why startups can uh, disrupt banks in, in banking, because they will be so good at software that actually they will have more users, they will learn more, they will have more data, they will iterate faster, and at some point they will be better at banking than banks that are doing it 100 years ago because banks will just rely on old models where new startups, software-powered startups will rely on data. And so like uh, this is what also uh, Chris Anderson said in in, uh, 2008 in an article like, "This this is the end of theory. This is the end of theory, this is the end of theoretical models without data now people who have data can sometimes be uh, more right and have better uh, decision making than people who are who have the good models so this is why it's important to have the data and these software companies actually because they have more users and because they're completely data driven and data informed they accumulate a lot more data to make better decisions even if they don't know the true job and what's behind this this is why companies like stripe or twilio Stripe has revolutioned the payment world. Twilio has revolutioned the telecommunication world. They were not payment and banking people, the founder of Stripe, and the founder of Twilio was not a telecommunication person, but they were software people. And this is why this graph, I really love it, because it shows that these small companies are a lot more software-driven because almost half of their team is directly involved in software, where companies that more than 500 people are just like between 10 and 14%. In, uh, let's say involved with uh, people directly working in software development. And for the people who have read the Phoenix Project, so the Phoenix Project is the story of, uh, yeah, like, let's say how a DevOps culture comes into a company, right? It, it's a great, great book. It's a fiction book, uh, but talking about DevOps. And actually, uh, I'm trying to not spoil anything. But at some point, they say that in a company you don't have a, a mathematics department, you don't have a learning to read department, right? Because doing simple math. And reading, ability to read, is, has been learned at school, right? But it's not a department. It's not a specific part of the company. Every employee at some point owns reading and owns simple math skills, right? And so they, they claim that uh, it should be in the future. It should be the same for software culture, at least not software development, but at least software culture, understanding how software works, how, uh, what are the interactions, what is software delivery, just understanding the culture of software development and so now it's owned by an IT department so it's people dedicated to that but it should it should not be it should be the software culture because of the world we are in should be spread across the company everybody should be trained and everybody should completely own the software culture knowing that the product cannot be uh, uh, launched in in one day or two days knowing that uh, the mythical man month uh, adding some some people to a late project make it later right because sometimes so many times in companies they don't understand why things are not shipped or why things are shipped that way because they don't understand the software culture behind this and so this graph i like it because it shows that the bigger the company the less people are involved in software development at least and this is why so many small companies are able to disrupt these these, these big companies with the product and software and applications that are that have millions of users, right? One last example, but you remember this idea that Instagram had 120 million users with only 14 employees. 14 employees, 120 million users. These guys were understanding software development. These guys were were really having and owning uh software culture or WhatsApp, you know, acquired 19 billion dollars with a uh, 50 employees, 50, five zero, right? You know, and and So these companies really were understanding the power of software and they were small. So these big companies right now, these more than 500 people in your graph, but I would imagine what would be more than 5,000, you know, as long as they don't have a bigger percentage of their people involved in software development, they will be always open to be like disrupted by small commando teams of, uh, let's say, uh, uh, with a high percentage of people involved in software development. That will iterate faster and that will, little by little, eat their rent by building product that people love instead of uh, building product that really do the job. It's better to be used by people than doing the exact job of the industry. what the industry will try to deliver. I, I can wait. I can wait features from a great banking app of a startup but where that really solves my problems and makes it easy. That have all the features of my classic bank app which I don't even know how to use because it's complicated. So this is why I love this graph.
0: Yeah, and I have to say I definitely love your interpretation of it. I I don't really have any comments here or uh, anything to add. I love how you took it from uh, basing your uh, every decision on actual data, you know, to address specific needs all the way to tying everything together, saying that you know there's not a department of mathematics or uh, everyone should own and completely understand what, what they're doing. And it's true that small startups, let's say, which are more developer-focused, the the number of people who are working and understand and uh, help build software, uh, how can they disrupt the industry? Yeah, totally agree there. I have to say before we we continue that uh, all this data we're talking about, the Relaxed Trends page, uh, are based on our Developer Economic Survey, which surveys more than 30,000 developers annually in 165 countries or more. And now, as we speak, the latest wave is live. So anyone who is a developer, uh, whether you're developing just as a hobby, you're a student or a professional, you can take the survey at developereconomics.net and you could win cool prizes and your results will lead to conversations like the one we're having with Mehdi right now. Uh, help developers understand the world and the world and start developers. So thank you very much for this interpretation. Uh, maybe it was uh, really insightful, which only leads us to to want to know more, I think. Definitely me, and I'm sure the listeners too. So will you tell us what is the API mindset?
1: So, uh, yeah, to, to to really understand the API mindset, you need to understand the where does the word and the, the acronym API comes from, right? and uh um, so so yeah so it, let's say in, in i'm I could try to make it quick but in the 50s you know there were the first computer coming out right and every time uh you know you had to uh write programs and software uh, like a routine routines for computers you have to do it on specific you know pinch card right and and you actually load this pinch card into into the computer to be able to read these programs right when there is one computer it's fine but when you begin to have one ten 100 computers worldwide, and you want to share and you want to reuse software made by others, you will need now to have software programs at the time, routines or subroutines, as they were calling it, cards. So, this is where it comes from. So, you begin to want to reuse this software across many different computers. But the problem, they have been designed for one type of computer, right? One type of specific uh, hardware computer. So, one in 1968, they, they begin to think about this idea. Of what if we can reuse the same interface for for making a, let's say application uh, run the same programs right so this is the first time actually where the world is, is really coined like that like that, even in uh, in the' 50s 60s, uh, von Neumann and others already thought about this idea, but they were never being able to implement because actually there were no use case directly. there were not enough computers, but they said at some point it will happen and in 1968 they said that now now it's the time because with the rapidity of development of new hardwares and new computers, right? Now it becomes an obligation to have software interfaces like application interfaces that needs, that helps the software to be reused on different computers, right? So that's where it really comes from. It comes from the, the inability to always replicate software to be able to deliver on different clients, right? Or different computer or different client. And you can check uh, now and even in the last 10 years, the API mindset is really how I can make my piece of software, my program, my technology reused by the many at zero cost of implementation or, or diminishing the cost of implementation. And it has many, many implications. It has implications internally because internally, if I make my software open and reusable by others, which is really, really well documented, people will be able to discover the software, right? Uh, if the APIs ex- really explain what's the capability they expose, they will be able to discover and cross pollinate inside an organization, uh, you know, about capabilities to, to stop rebuilding the same capabilities, right? In the same way that in 60, they were rebuilding computers. But now I have different departments. Every department can use the API of others to reuse software. So even it has some IT costs, diminishes the IT costs because now I stop replicating software. I reuse software via these different APIs, right? So also because APIs are open by design, they they are secure, but they are self-service. They are self-service. It's like a menu of a restaurant. You you you, you read and you order what you want. But now with the software, it also makes teams autonomous. You don't have to ask for specific authorization for an export of a database to be sent you by email or by FTP or whatever. You know, now humans are a lot more autonomous when they want to interact with others. So that enables also this autonomous ability to pull data from a system to another. So uh, discoverability, zero cost or almost of integration, reusability and the autonomous integration are really the internal, key, internal benefits of an API mindset. But externally, too, is the same idea. It's the same idea. If I have a piece of software and I want to deliver it and sell it, to uh, thousands or millions of companies uh, outside, I need to really integrate that my APIs needs to be well-designed, well-secured, but also available for other companies to implement directly my, uh, my technology, right? And this is what companies like Stripe or Twilio or ADN or PayPal or Braintree or so many, many uh, Algolia for search have done. They have done like, they say, okay, instead of reusing software inside your company, you may not have, you can use software from another company directly via its API and you integrate it in the same way. It's discoverable, it's uh, autonomously uh, integrable, it's uh, uh, highly documented to make it at zero cost of integration. And so like that, you can now export your capabilities to others directly via by APIs that makes this uh, programmable economy. So this API mindset is understanding that the cost when the cost of integration goes to zero, you achieve your maximum capacity of reach internally or externally and even if you are not the best at the time people will still integrate you because now it costs so much to integrate technologies that integrating someone or a technology that is almost cheap or free to integrate because it's so easy it's a competitive advantage compared to a technology that is maybe better but that's it longer to integrate and i'll just finish with this uh, this, this metaphor is the difference between when you go for lunch and you know the best place that does the best food is at two miles away so you have to take your car spend half an hour walking to go there and there's a long waiting line but but you know it's the best it has the best food the best uh, it has everything but at some point most of the time you will go to this close place to your office because it's easy it's uh, fast food it's self-service and you can go back to your office faster so so it's not in a world where the cost and time is money and the cost of integration is high. Being integrable and being, let's say, easy to, to, to implement has sometimes more value than being the best and having all the features. Right. And so this is the same idea, is that uh, this the Stripe and the Twilio companies at the time were not the best, or even Amazon Web Services at the time were not the best, but they were the most easy to consume, the most simple and easy and fast to consume to have the fast return on investment. And over by over, they grew to add more features and now they're the best, right? So be the first to be, in, to be integrated, then be the best. You will be the best after. But the more important is that people integrate with you. This is the API mindset.
0: Yeah, and no, thank you for the history because it really explains how things used used and what kind of problems we've come to, to solve. And I think the metaphor you used in the end perfectly sums it up. It also has to do, I think, with um, one of our previous episode talked about its, um, the developer experience. So when it's easy for someone to, to use your product, yeah, I think that the features will come to you later on definitely. All you have to do is make sure that it's something that it's easy to adopt and um, helps solve a problem you're having.
1: Yeah, like in a restaurant, the more important is people sit at the table and begin to order. Now, you know, they're, they're with you and then <laughs> they're, they're with you. So the more important is to be sure you onboard people. Right and to be sure they 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 know uh, and they are they are at the right time and the right place to be able to learn about you and and wait for the features, right? So yeah, onboarding is is extremely key and you can do that by lowering the cost of in, of integrating your API, right? But uh, uh, some some psychologists often compare it with you know when you have st- automatic stairs, automatic elevators, right? Or stairs, right? At some point, if you uh, you your your body your mind check the quantity of energy you will need to go with the classic stairs or automatic stairs. And at some point, depending on how far they are, you will choose one versus the other, right? Because we're lazy and we love automatic stairs be, be compared to uh, classic stairs. But if the automatic stairs is really far away and, uh, and you begin to think that the energy cost to go to the automatic stairs then to, to, use, uh, to use it is a lot higher than just doing the stairs that are in front of you. You will use the stairs that are in front of you. So B be the uh, be as close as possible to the customer to show that it will cost the lowest energy possible to integrate with you
0: yeah that's definitely true and i have to say i love your analogies because they make everything so clear it's uh, it's good to have them so what do you say are the benefits for those who adopt this mindset
1: so so the benefits it's uh, internally the benefits are first it's agility right the ability to ship software and expose it in a way that's consumable by others directly. Instead of uh, having like uh, complex systems, now you have one interface that exposes what you are able to do, that also hides what you don't want to expose, right? So that's, EPIs uh, are high, as much as hiding as exposing interface. But agility, because once you build something, you can expose it to others directly. And you know, in agile methodology, they often say that if you want to build a car, build a scooter, but then build a motorbike and then build a car, because you have to always build something that works, right? But that evolves over time. Now with APIs, before building the final applications, you will begin to build every building brick and expose it via an API. So even if the application takes six months and one year to be built, every two weeks, all the capability you build, you will expose them by APIs to even others in the company. So you make the return investment of software faster and across the whole company. So agility really in one of, of the first step. The second step is reusability, because internally when you expose things and that are able to be reused by others, you, you avoid the replication of software, right? So you save some IT costs, right? And the third one is often what they call business breadth. Uh, the ability of the business to understand what the IT teams built and what the IT teams does and so at some point, the business now, instead of looking for product outside the company, they will understand what their what the IT teams actually delivers. It will be not a, a service called MS1235X, uh, whatever. It will be, a, a, for example, digital signature API, right? So now it makes complete sense. My company built a digital signature API that I can use in my applications, internal applications, or payment API, or SMS API, or customer validation API, or whatever, right? So it makes sense if you begin to think in the API. So the business can understand. And as we say, business breadth, this ability to have a lot more understanding of what's what's coming and so more options internally to build and faster instead of always requiring to do with uh, third parties. On the external side, APIs have the ability to have an outstanding reach because with the same API, you will deliver customers on anywhere in the world or every type of clients. can be web clients, mobile clients, iot clients or whatever and you can be integrated in any third-party platforms right so the reach externally the reach is it is great and the last thing which is also a huge benefit externally is that you don't you let the customer do the work it's like exactly like ikea you know ikea s- send you furniture but you have to make the building yourself and th- it's great because they don't have to assemble all the furnitures they don't take the risk of transport they don't take the risk of assembling furniture that may yet that you may not like they just sell you by piece then you assemble yourself this is what makes the ikea business model great with apis it's exactly the same you have capabilities you have many building blocks in your company you expose to others by apis but they have they need to come to your portal integrate your api and and take your resources and build the way they want so you take as a company you take less risk building uis and building applications that people may not want or because it's really hard now to compete on the ui and the application uh, let's say real estate on mobile phones for example it's really really hard but if you just build give the resources the api the capabilities the application developer will come and integrate to them so you take less more risk and you have a lot more reach and you do actually less work to reach the final market Right? because it will be the developers who takes the risk of building UIs and building applications in a highly competitive market, but they will come to you and do the last mile to uh, the customer. Right? But you, you, are, you, are, you have a, or a producer approach, supplier approach, and you deliver to everybody. So that's really an important part. And this is what we see, we see with companies which call infrastructure APIs. So all the cloud companies, they don't care about what you do, they just provide you cloud capabilities. Stripe payment APIs. They don't care about what you do. They do the payment (laughs) service that enables you to integrate. That's a huge return investment for companies to be able to deliver just the capabilities, but not take the risk of the market.
0: Yeah, I think the benefits, as you said, the more pretty clear and uh, you know even looking at it both from the software side but also from the business side you know you have a project that's uh, agile reusable uh, as you said the business breadth also is uh, of key importance especially you know as technology uh, progresses and people trying to understand how all the departments are working and what they're working on and also you know the, the outstanding rates and letting customers do the work yeah i think they're, they're also very key now we're talking about uh, APIs and APIs are built uh, by developers and also for developers. So how would you say is the API developer unique? Do APIs define a specific skill set that the developer should have?
1: So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a small site I'm, I'm, I'm engaging with in the last uh, 10 years is recognize the uh, API, APIs as, as a skill set, a mindset and a skill set for, for developers. You know, a lot of developers, and you know that better than anybody with your, uh, data at uh, slash data, but recognize themselves as front-end developers, back-end developers, or mobile developer, or desktop developers, or, you know, and uh, and sometimes they say AI developers. So so every time they try to match it with a specific set of technologies, can be the programming language. Oh, I'm a Java developer, or .NET developer, or C-sharp, or whatever. And, and yes, so every time developers refer themselves in terms of communities, but what we found at API is, is that actually uh, some developers find themselves to be API developers. They feel that the work, the craft of uh, designing APIs, building APIs, testing and developing and, and deploying APIs, and then monitoring APIs is a skill set that needs to be attached to a specific world, which is not front-end, not back-end, not whatever, but to be API developers, right? Knowing GREST, you know, uh, representational state transfer, uh, knowing GraphQL, knowing GRPC, for example, uh, knowing OAuth, you know the authorization protocol, right? For example, uh, you know uh, knowing specific like uh, uh, Open API specifications. Now, knowing how to build APIs, knowing HTTP is a skill set that some developers recognize them, themselves in, which is to be a, an API uh, developer. Right? How to write documentation because developers sometimes don't like to write documentation most of the time, but some developers do. And, and yes, doing uh, doing great documentation, monitoring APIs. I even seen a community called API apps. It's like a DevOps, but just for APIs, right? Just for the API's craft, the API's uh, mindset. So they call themselves API Ops, right? So yeah, this is why this unique skill set, which is a little bit of front-end, a little bit of, little bit of backend, a little, little bit of distributed system, a little bit of security, right? But gather into something that uh, I call and what we call in the community, like API uh, developers. And with API Days, we have a community of uh, 150,000 people, uh, right? And these, so for the developers in it, like 40%, they recognize themselves as, as API developer, right? So yeah, so this is why I, I, I fight and I, <laughs> and, I, and I promote the idea of uh, API developers as a specific segment, you know, because we see them at API Days over the last eight years, and they're still there. It's not specific technology because uh, technology evolves, but we still need interfaces. So it's, uh, it's people working in interfaces uh, of software for software. Yeah. So this is uh, this is what I think uh, about the, why API developers should be a segment uh, in your next uh, studies at Slash Data.
0: Yeah. No. I think that's definitely great, and um, you know, given the the uniqueness of the API developers, it makes perfect sense. You know, for them, for someone to see them as a segment of their own. Where do you think is the untapped potential of the API market?
1: the the untapped potential of the API market is in many places, but really the, you have two two layers, right? Either the tooling, so building tools for helping others to build APIs or de- deploy APIs or monitor or test APIs, right? There is still a lot of room there with the appearance of last year's of Open API specification and API descriptions format that helps to describe APIs in a in a machine readable way. There, You can automate a lot of tooling, right? And many, many companies are trying to tackle that, but there is a huge opportunity there. And also in the GraphQL uh, world, especially because the tooling is, um, is, more, is newer and developers actually love GraphQL. Also. So there is a huge opportunity there to build tools. On the other side, there is an opportunity to call what, we, what I call API as a product, or what some, uh, some investors call infrastructure APIs. Right. So these APIs that have that that does one capability, one uh, business process as a service, but they they do it in a way that is so easy to implement that uh, any company in the world can just do like some few API calls to add the capability into their system. Right. So that's that's an important opportunity to build APIs as a product, like uh, payments or telecom or uh, search genes or uh, specific data or you know all this specific uh, capabilities right or machine uh, facial recognition or machine learning you know when you don't know a capability but you can add it send data to a platform that sends you data back and that does this capability for you that's what people call is an api as a product or uh, what we call uh, infrastructure apis and maybe i would add just to the last one companies who build apis all on top of legacy systems on old systems for example uh, some really great companies are doing APIs on top of all the old legacy hotel chains and systems. So, like that, when you will need to interact with uh, one hotel chain, when you make an app, you will just use their API and they will manage the the backend, the, the backend system, let's say, uh, issue uh, with whatever hotel. You know, this idea of uh, write once, run forever. You write, you write codes just once with an API company, but that handles all the connections behind the scene with all the hotel chains, uh, in the case of hotels, with all banks, if it's, if it's the case of banks. And this is why Played has been acquired five, $5 billion recently. They are just one API to connect with all the banks, right? all the banking systems, all the legacy bank systems. So this ability of APIs to be an exposing interface, but also a hiding interface that hides all the mess, because you just see the interface. Yeah, it's a great uh, capacity, and, and you will understand it if you understand the API mindset. The API is the menu of the restaurant. It's not how the kitchen is designed. It doesn't tell you sometimes the name of the chef. It doesn't tell you what are the appliances. It just tells you what you can order and what you you can give to the waiter, right? And if you really understand that menu and uh, hiding and exposing capability, you can find all the business uh, opportunities that are uh, attached to the API mindset.
0: A lot of opportunities there. A lot of things that can be done. Do you think this is... Where the future is going to? How do you see the API landscape evolving in the future? So the API uh, landscape
1: will evolve. As I said, into two parts: the, the tooling. The tooling will be wider, and the tooling also will be more uh, segmented. Now there will be more space for just features to exist, right? Uh, I see, for example, API mocking companies, right? So they just do mocking, which is a one tiny part of the API full life cycle. But now there are more and more companies and, and enough uh, developers who are into this API industry that, yeah, now you can have uh, 100,000 users just doing one mock-up API company, right, or one testing API company or, or, other, or other stuff like that. I, I even see some companies backed by Y Combinator who are just one API uh, governance. Uh, tooling just to know if you respect the company guidelines. So, I just check if the APIs that are built respect the company guidelines, right? Which is extremely timely. So, first, the API landscape will see more and more uh, fragmentation into the tooling, right? So, tools will do less, but they will be a lot more specialized, right? And on the infrastructure and API as a product side, actually, the landscape will completely explode, right? The landscape will completely explode because of more and more companies. We'll, be, we'll try to develop some business process as a service to be integrated with more and more other companies right? into this uh, high fragmentation, exactly like the car industry has, uh, has been or any kind of uh, industry in the industrial revolution. We've been to a lot more fragmented supply chains right, that work together. Everybody is highly specialized and do one thing. And so we are doing it the same way, but not in a supply chain, but let's say in digital supply chain where companies, actually, this is what I call the the axiom of the API economy. So more and more companies will expose their capabilities directly via APIs, right? As we were saying, I have capabilities, I expose them to others, internally or externally, to reach my maximum market capacity. But on the other side, more and more companies will begin to integrate other companies' capabilities via their APIs. So I call it the B2B sharing economy. It's uh, an API economy. It means that I will expose what I do the best to others, but I will integrate via, via APIs. But I will integrate what others do the best via their APIs. So I have one APIs out, but many is APIs in. And every company will be like that, right? I deliver one. I integrate many to build my one product. I expose my product. That will be one of many of someone else, right? When I do a, just a payment service and via an API, I'm, I'm just do one thing. I maybe use 100 APIs as an input. I just have one output, but this output is one of 100 of another company that just use payment and others as an input to build an output. So, so yeah, so this is really what we're, how the landscape will evolve.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a future that you, we're all looking for. Um, it seems like there'll be a lot of progress coming in also when, when these things are implemented. The way you said it. I know for sure that listening to you all and us going through this, uh, this chat in this episode leaves me wanting more. So I look forward to API Days. Uh, will you tell to our listeners why API Days is a must-attend event?
1: API Days today is the main series of APIs events. Uh, of uh, talking about the technical challenges of APIs, but also the business challenges of APIs, uh, including also the governance aspect, you know, between uh, how humans interact with technology in an organization. Uh, so we do that in eight countries every year. Uh, we gather all the API uh, experts, book authors, creators of tooling or protocols, or the people implementing it every day, head of APIs or CIOs of companies, with a strong API strategy. So yeah, so if you understand API mindset or if you if you want to understand the API mindset, the yeah, API days is definitely the series of conference you, you, you want to attend and listen from others and also network with others and, and meet other people that may help you in your industry or in other industry that face the same problem as you, right? So yeah, uh, you can check uh, all next conferences on API days.co and uh, yeah, uh, probably, uh, um, there, there is an API conference every time in the year <laughs> that you can attend to, mostly because now all our conferences are at least on have an online version. So you can, uh, you can uh, listen to, to the talks and participate uh, in the community. So, yeah, in that sense, if you are an API, if you're interested in APIs or if you work with APIs, yeah, this is definitely uh, a conference to attend to.
0: I can tell you for sure that here at Slash Data, the whole team is looking forward to it. To, to interface. Uh, will you tell our listeners about the dates?
1: So our next event uh, will be our global online event called API Days Interface. Uh, as you were mentioning, it will be June 30th and July 1st, two days uh, with uh, three time zones and uh, like for wherever you are in the world, you will be able to follow, follow the event. Yes. So And you can find on apidays.co slash interface uh, for the next event. We have other events coming in in uh, uh, in the year, but the next one, the next big one is API's interface, where you will be with uh, three thousand other API practitioners uh, live.
0: Medhi, it's uh, it's been great talking to you. I think we had a very uh, we had a great chat here, and uh, everything you said was very insightful in helping us understand the API market or the landscape. If our listeners want more from you, how can they reach you? They can
1: follow me on Twitter, uh, Medjawi, M-E-D-J-A-W-I-I, uh, right? They can follow me on Twitter. Or they can reach me at uh, Medi, at apidays.io, M-E-H-D, come Delta, uh, M-E-H-D-I, at apis.io, And I would be glad to engage with them and discuss with them and tell them uh, uh, how, they can, how they need to know more or where they can find more resources about APIs.
0: Perfect. Uh, it's been great having you, Mehdi. And uh, for our listeners, thank you for listening to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, the podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. You can listen to all episodes, five free resources, and the latest news at debralex.com. And you can subscribe to our bite-sized bi-weekly digest or follow us on Twitter at HQ. Thank you very much, Mehdi.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Stadis.